you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us this week. And so pleased to be joined by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Cinegots.com. Just back from jury assignment at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. And our Leo Lowenstein joining us as well. They're going to get right started with uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Paul Rudd is back. Evangeline Lilly, Jonathan Majors, Michael Douglas, and Michelle Pfeiffer in the cast as well. Peyton Reed directs Jeff Loveness, the screenwriter. Tim, what did you think of the new Ant-Man and the Wasp? Well, this movie features one extraordinary thing. It's a performance by Jonathan Majors as Kang, a venerable uh, nemesis in the Marvel Universe. And, and Jonathan Majors is just absolutely outstanding in this movie. I mean, he's far and away. He's just in a different movie. He, he's given this Shakespearean <laughs> performance in this movie that is otherwise kind of silly. Now it's Ant-Man. And the Ant-Man movies in the Marvel Universe, it's the lighter Marvel Universe. This, Guardians of the Galaxy, they're meant to be yeah. funny. They're pointed at a younger audience. They are. Uh, and that's all fa- fine, and there's a lot of that in this movie. But somehow, with Jonathan Majors just giving this extraordinary performance, everything else just seems out of place. We're in the quantum universe, in the quantum realm. We've been there before in the Marvel Universe. Hank Pym, Michael Douglas, and created that, created that Pym particle so that he could shrink down smaller, 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 smaller quantum realm, so he could save his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, who got to the quantum realm 30 years ago, saves her. We go back to the quantum realm. What she didn't tell us is what was going on in that quantum realm. Man, all kinds of business is going on in that quantum realm. And it looks a lot, Lael, like Star Wars to me. Did everything in this movie scream Star Wars? Once you get to the quantum the outfits, the, the, the goggles, it's all Star Wars. And it's all set in a world that looks a lot like Avatar. These creatures floating <laughs> around. I'm like, you think is- this is intentional? I got- these are all Disney universes, yeah. right? And we even have a moment in this film where we walk into something that looks just like that Star Wars bar from 1977. Yeah. So I, I got to feel like something's going on there. It, it, it's a father-daughter uh, story, a couple of father-daughter stories, mm-hmm. actually, and that's moving and touching. Lots and lots of action. But I got to tell you, that Jonathan, this kid, Jonathan Majors, he is the new deal, man. He is the real deal. It's the only time we would hear Shakespearean and Ant-Man. Leo, what did you think? You know, I I, I agree with Tim. I thought Majors was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he elevated the material, and he really was in a different realm altogether. Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't bad. Also, she tried uh, to, to, to she, she did her best. But given that so much of the time these actors are really just acting against a green screen, uh, it felt very much to me like this was not only like a it just felt like, a, you know, either like you're in a video game or this was just some sort of a meme generator. Like I just could see the memes coming, you know, as we were watching the movie. And I I felt, you know, I I, I know people are divided with the Marvel movies. Either they, they're very passionate or they're against them or, you know, in cases like mine, you're sort of in the middle. I, I like some of the movies. I don't like others. I really enjoyed the first Ant-Man. I thought you see Paul Rudd's humor, his charm, his wit. Uh, there's less of that on display here. And I I felt it was sort of exhausting, frenetic. And like you said, Tim, too much of everything, like there is star, very much that whole cantina in Star Wars, so many allusions to that. And it did feel a little bit like, you know, the corporate tie-ins, the, 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 Disney, the Disney MCU thing, just milking it a little too much. I thought it was a little drunk on its own mythology also. It mm. just really sort of enjoyed itself too much for no reason when I wasn't enjoying it that mm. much. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, the film, rated PG-13 in wide release. 
Return to Seoul, as in the South Korean capital, is a film in English, French, and Korean. It's Cambodia's official Oscar entry for Best International Feature. The film is written and directed by uh, Davy Shu, who is a French-Cambodian director. Lael, what did you think of Return to Seoul? This is a very, very good film. It's uh, tremendously well thought out and beautifully mounted. Davy Chu uh, presents the story of a young woman who is uh, Korean by birth but was adopted and raised in France. On a whim, she comes to Cam- to, to Korea and uh, is introduced to some, some other Koreans there and uh, says, you know, they, they ask her, do you want to find your birth parents? Are you here to find your birth parents? And she says, well, no, I hadn't thought about it. And she's very kind of nonchalant and blithe, and she flouts kind of convention, and she, you know, she's she's really, as it turns out, she's got an attachment disorder because she's really deeply wounded by this adoption that happened, you know, just after her birth. And she feels, for, I think, her whole life this, you know, am I worthy? Did anyone want me? Why did they get rid of me? And she does end up meeting at least one, maybe more of her birth parents, and uh, it's it's a really very tense, traumatic, and difficult difficult relationship. Um, I thought it was just a tremendous performance by uh, Park Ji Min, and she is. I understand she hadn't acted before. This was really her mm. first film. She was an artist, and she just brings this this sort of this very tight jawed resentment to the beginning of the film opening up in the middle of the film to kind of someone who's a little more defiant and then sort of growing into her woundedness and her pride tremendous also camera work really sort of searching very intimate and uh, just a very very powerful film got a lot of love from the LA film critics mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. we're talking about the movie Return to Seoul which is technically a Cambodian film but set in Seoul South Korea Tim what did you think uh, extraordinary in, in, in every way. This the over the eighties and nineties, thousands, hundreds of thousands of these Korean babies who were adopted out United States and Europe. It's a thing. Uh, it was and it was it, it was a thing politically for quite a while too. And so she's one of these children grown up, and she's angry, mm-hmm. and and she is disruptive. Uh, and, and and has good good reason to be she's angry with her parents, her French uh, parents who she's angry with this with this family, and it's the thing that she has about being French. I'm French. I'm French. But now she's in Korea with all of these people who look like her, and with her actual father who really looks like her. Am I French? How could I possibly be French? Mm-hmm. I, I can I can imagine the knots that would and she portrays that so well in this film, uh, and it goes to some dark but ultimately I think sort of forgiving places. It feels very very emotionally truthful. This film I, I think it just it's very powerful. Reminded me just a little bit of Daughter from Da Nang, that mm. uh, wonderful documentary from twenty years ago about a Vietnamese uh, girl who's adopted in in the states and just you know all the uncomfortable things that that brings up when you go back to your homeland, your native land. Again, the film's written and directed by uh, Davy Shu. It's rated R in English, French, and Korean. Return to Seoul is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Uh, Emily uh, is a biographical drama starring Emma Mackey and Finn Whitehead. The film is written and directed by Frances O'Connor in her feature directorial debut. Tim, what did you think of uh, this take on Emily Bronte? I, I thoroughly enjoyed this film, which looks and feels a lot like Wuthering Nights. Which, of course, is the only book, the only novel uh, that, uh, that, Emily, that Emily wrote before she died very young at the age of 30. What I think Frances O'Connor has done here is imagined Emily Bronte as, as, as the uh, heroine in her own story. And she's shaped this story. This story is shaped from whole cloth. We have the Bronte family, as we know them. Uh, um, uh, Emily was younger than Charlotte, but older than Anne. Uh, and also younger than Branwell, her brother, the brother Bronte, who we don't talk about a whole lot because he was a ne'er-do-well. Uh, but, uh-huh. but in this film, they have this extraordinary relationship. She imagines this extraordinary relationship. Emily, uh, Emma Mackey plays Emily with all these glitches and phobias, and, and she doesn't want to come out. And Charlotte, her older sister, who's just written Jane Eyre, gets her a job teaching and drags her off to be a teacher, and she doesn't want to be a teacher. She goes all the, And she meets this reverend 
And this relationship starts that looks a lot like that reverend, that relationship between Kathy and Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. So that's the idea here. This this relationship that she imagines is perhaps the fodder for her one and only book. Does that work, that oh, amalgam? It really, really does. Um, because, because she knows exactly what things to keep and what things to let go. And then she knows to make this film look and feel like the, there are like 75 Wuthering Heights that have been made. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, um, the one with uh, Lawrence and... Uh, and, um, Lawrence and Olivia, from yeah. 39. 1939, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. This film looks like that film. Uh, Greg Tolan shot that film. And so the cinematographer here plainly studied that rolling moors, the fog settling on everything. And it's just just so, so moving, but it's also kind of funny. But I see what she's done. I think she did a good job of it. And I say excellent work. Emily is the film, the biographical drama, obviously extraordinarily fictionalized. Emma Mackey stars Finn Whitehead as well, written and directed by Frances O'Connor. It's rated R. You can see it at the Century City Theater and the Grove Theater. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is back in a 4K restoration. And, of course, a uh, wonderful cast returns. Michelle Yeoh, uh, Chow Yun-Fat as well, Ang Lee directing. Uh, and uh, wonderful to see this, I'm sure, on the big screen. Leo? Wow. Well, I don't think I had seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in, I don't know, maybe 20 years. And... I was just as thrilled to see it again as I was the first time I saw it, which was actually at the Cannes Film Festival in 2000 with a room full of critics that was absolutely mesmerized. Well, can you imagine? Because never probably even heard much no. about the film. No. And here you're watching this spectacle as the first you know, group of, it, it of was, critics. It was, I it. can remember the feeling, Larry. It was, it was palpable. Uh, the first, you know, 10 minutes of the film is sort of setting up the historical context and it's a lot of talking. It's a little bit boring. And then this fight scene begins that is one of the most amazing, balletic, um, beautifully choreographed, st- stunningly shot, um, scored in the most amazing way with this drum beat by by Tandon. It's, it's absolutely stunning and I, and I think you know I, I know the room broke out into applause afterwards I can't remember if some of us stood up also in the middle of the it was just this amazing feeling and uh, this movie still holds up it is it is in every way a terrific film and you know if you're looking for a martial arts film it delivers that if you're looking for a romance it delivers that great performances Zhang Ziyi Chow Yun-Fat Michelle Yeoh um, it, it's beautifully the production design also stupendous you know I can't there aren't enough superlatives and the (laughs) fact that it still works after all these years is really something it was just a tremendous amazing accomplishment yeah Tim crouching tiger hidden dragon new 4k no yeah look there's a there's some kind of Hong Kong fan kung fu fan uh, that that knew these people that knew these movies Mm -hmm. wire work uh, was a phrase that that, that we knew that was that the word the phrase wire work was introduced by by this I've never heard it never this film and and, and, and this film brought to an entire swath of American uh, cinema goers all of those elements that we had been in love with for a long time and these people who were all movie stars by the way these Mm -hmm. people were all movie stars uh, for this film, but now they're international right. movie stars. It's, it's what this film was able to do. The 4K. Gotta tell you, don't care for the 4K. Really? Mm. No. Uh, I, I I like this film soft. I you know I have the mm. this film belongs soft. Wire work does not stand up well in mm. 4K. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like some of the uh, earlier TV series mm-hmm. that you see in 4K, and the makeup is so you visible. You can see all the thick makeup yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Because and sometimes you can actually see the strings in that resolution. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's problematic for me. But you know, um, I'm, I'm sure fans of the film will still love the film. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the 4K restoration is in select theaters, also available on demand. Rated PG-13. Heart of a Champion, a family drama, drama starring Casper Van Dien. Uh, the film's directed by Brad Keller. Lisa Chapman wrote it. 
Tim, heart of a champion. Well, this is a mediocre but not bad family drama about a girl and her horse in the heartland of America. And I liked it. Good. I, I say that. <laughs> You're just like pounding the <laughs> Yeah, because I can, I can, And I no can, one can stop me. I can, I can, I can feel that a lot of people are going to poke at a little movie like this. I'm sorry. I love this little movie. So she has these parents who are freshly divorced, and she dreams of horses all day in class. And, 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 and she's a feisty kid, and her father, a ne'er-do-well father, promises her a horse. He can, he's not going to get her a horse. But this feisty kid figures out the way to get herself a horse. And she finds a lost horse. Because, I don't know, and it's just a lost horse. Next thing we know, there's a barrel racing championship, and there's a boy, and there's going to be all this stuff. And, and the guy who actually owned that horse is going to come looking for that horse. All of that's going to happen in this movie, and you know it's all going to happen. And I just adored every moment of it. And who could hate it? That's how you described it. You'd have to be a mean, cruel person. Tim, did it feel at all recycled, like you'd seen some of this before? Every frame. <laughs> <laughs> every frame. And it made me happy. But there's a reason it's been done all this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heart of a Champion, the family drama... Rated PG at Lindley's Glendale Theater and available on demand. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. Our critics have many more reviews to come when we come back in a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm joined by critics Lael Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell. And next up in this week's release is Boy From Nowhere, film uh, that's from the Philippines, written and directed by S.J. Finley. Lael, what did you think? Oh, this is a really interesting film. It was it was shot um, in the Philippines and sort of almost like guerrilla style, like they got together people who were non-actors and it has a very, very authentic feeling. It's it's the story of a boy who is abandoned, like a 13, 14-year-old boy, when his village burns down. And there's so much poverty, you know, in the Philippines that uh, to, to come from, from um, rural origins where you don't have much to begin with, you are sort of especially open to being corrupted and, uh, you know, adopted into gangs and so forth. So this boy, after his family perishes, he tries to take a bus to find his his long-lost mother, who he never knew but heard she lives in another village, and uh, he gets sort of taken up by this gang. He he gets um, taken under the wing of this one guy named Knack Knack, and uh, <laughs> Gary, our, our, our boy, is uh, so impressionable, he's kind of willing to go along with whatever Knack Knack wants him to do, which is to, you know, learn to be a fighter. Well, there, there are bigger fish even than than knack knack, and there's another gang. There's a there's a military warfare that's happening all at the same time, and so these guys get sort of sucked up along the food chain, and uh, it's it sounds like it's more simplistic than it is because along the way, Gary has to figure out sort of who he is and what's important to him, and what become what's a what's a true friend. Uh, I I thought. Also, the camera work was really exceptional in that it feels very, very, um, you are there. You know, it, it almost has a documentary-like feeling, which is uh, enhanced by the fact that these are non-professional actors. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's got a real rich texture. You, you feel that you're, you're absolutely kind of immersed. And there's also kind of a nice political message at the end, which is, you know, don't just assume, don't just blame the government for things that you don't know about. You know, if you're actually, you could be a farmer and make food rather than be a fighter and, you know, and, and kill the other farmers. You know, it's so, so it's sort of a, a very sweet 
lovely film. I really liked it. And it looks like that the actors' names may actually yes, be used for same, the characters. Yes, so that's right. They're not only non-professionals, yeah. they're using their and real names. And it felt names. very true. And there's a lovely little epilogue at the end where you, you just see that the what's what's happened to the, the actors who played them, like like Knack Knack. So it's 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 very sweet, worth watching. Stars uh, Gary Jumawan and Knack Knack Abuguan. The film written and directed by S.J. Finley from the Philippines, Boy from Nowhere. It's in Basaya and Tagalog with English subtitles, and you can see it on Amazon Prime Video, Boy From Nowhere. A Radiant Girl, French drama starring Rebecca Martyr and André Marcon. The film is written and directed by Cedrine uh, Kieberlan. What did you think of A Radiant Girl, Tim? Uh, a, a very thoughtful film. Sandrine. Sandrine's a wonderful actress, alias Betty, in, in, in other films. This is her directorial debut. Um, uh, and, and doing very good work here. Set in 1942 in, in, in Paris, this Jewish family, particularly this young girl that we're following who's an acting student. And she is radiant. She's uh, jubilant and bullion. And she's just, uh, and she bounces around. She's just having a, a joyful life in anticipation of, of where her life is going to go. Uh, a Jewish girl in Paris in 1942. Um, her, you know, she has a brother who, who's into math and her father's a professor. And at the end of the day, what this film is about, those who waited too long, those who thought that everything would be okay, those who thought if they followed the rules that the occupiers, and we watch as people in her life and around her periphery and ultimately in her family start just disappearing, being taken. Uh, we watch when they are forced to start wearing the yellow stars and she is still trying to live the life of a 20 year old girl and it's a it's it's a, it's a it's a really strange feeling to watch this film it's really beautiful and she's she's doing all these things but we know that she's in paris in 1942 and what's going to happen and we just walk right up through this movie and it's it's very uncomfortable while at the same time being extremely beautiful and ultimately it is what we know it will be a radiant girl lael I think film. I think that Tim saw a slightly different film than I. I. I agree with you. She is on the cusp of womanhood, and France is on the cusp of being absorbed into the war and everything. But to me, uh, Sandrine Kiberlin, who is a, an actress who I admire very, very much, I don't feel like she brought nearly enough kind of context to it. It has a really an odd sense of being not of its particular time and place. There's there are very few scenes where you see um, more than one or two people at a time. And I don't know if that was a budget decision or a conscious decision on the part of the director to um, to make it really about this family and this girl and the fact that it's, you know, it's just another family, but look what's about to happen to them. And we know, as you said, what is coming. But to me, I wanted more, I, I wanted more of a sense of context, like that it feeling real uh, or, or I guess verisimilitude is, is what I mean, really, because she spends so much time. She's an aspiring actress. She spends so much time rehearsing or rehearsing with her friends and, you know, or playing, you know, joking with her brother and so forth. I felt there wasn't much about it that seemed very specific to its moment, except for the, yes, the, the, the things that they have to do to, you know, as the government's making them comply and so forth and wear the star and get the stamp on their passports and all that. But I, I didn't feel like it had a real sense of, of context. That's somehow. interesting. It, for me, that focus was, mm. the, was the motivating thing. Mm. It, in other words, uh, this family, this one girl, she's, she's going to represent for us every girl just mm. like her. Mm-hmm. All those dreams and possibilities that will not be realized. Mm-hmm. But, but, but for that to have the impact that I think she means to film to have, we have to see it from that child's point of view. Right. And, and that child is in her child's point of view. She's 20, but, but she's literally she's in that point woman. of view. And she's, she, fall, she falls in love with a, with a doctor optometrist, and she's, you know, she's, very, she's very fresh and young. You're right. I mean, yeah, and and that's her whole world. And you know what, Tim? It worked for you, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I wanted it to work for me. It just, I felt, I, I know French people that still live exactly that way, and so, so in, in those kitchens like that with very little having changed, and it felt like it could have been any time almost, mm. except for the muted colors of their, of, their, of their clothes and things. But, you know, it didn't feel very specific to that 
moment historically. But yeah. A Radiant Girl, French drama film written and directed by Sandrine Kieberlan, the film starring Rebecca Martyr. It's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. The First Fallen, Brazilian drama, that's written and directed by Rodrigo de Oliveira, the film starring Johnny Massaro. Tim, what do you think of The First Fallen? Oh, striking, striking film. 1983, just at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, the HIV-AIDS crisis. We're in Brazil, small, small town in Brazil. We were, we're with this uh, young gay man played by Johnny. He's a biologist, and there's a, there's a small LGBTQ community around. And all they know is people are getting sick. And that's the mood of this film. Uh, it's, it's almost like a mystery as all of these people try to figure out what is going on in this community. Bit by bit, they, what, they, what they come to realize is um, that there is this thing, they call it the gay cancer, the government isn't going to help us, we have to help ourselves, attempt to save ourselves. He has a family, uh, a young nephew that he, that he truly loves, and who he's trying to keep safe. Say if he knows this young nephew is gay, too. He, he gets involved with some artists, some transgender folks, and, and, and they do what work they can to try to communicate to the greater community. There is this thing. It is happening. They take, they take uh, Polaroids of each other's sores and pass them all around. I remember 1983. I was working on a blood bank in 1983. This was, it was absolutely devastating. It was horrifying. Uh, this film captures that. And it captures it in Brazil. Uh, uh, and so I, very moving, very powerful, um, a very, very good movie. And it sounds like it captures, Tim, that thing that we all were dealing with was the not knowing, the not understanding, um, and and how frightening that can be when you don't really understand what's going on. That is exactly what is in this film, uh, a, a lack of understanding, and with that, the fear that comes, especially the fear from those who are looking at that community and people saying, like them, them who are getting so sick. The first fall in the Brazilian drama is unrated. It's in Portuguese with English subtitles at Lemley's Glendale Theater. The other fellow is an Australian biographical documentary. Uh, which takes a look at people with the name James Bond. <laughs> Lael, <laughs> the other fellow. Larry, you can't get through that without laughing. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> well, actually, uh, this was a pretty good documentary and a pretty clever idea because um, apparently uh, Ian Fleming decided on the name for his protagonist uh because he wanted something that was flat and simple and easy to remember. And he took the name James Bond from an ornithologist who uh, had written a book about birds that he was reading at the time while he was living in Jamaica. And in so doing, he messed up the life of the actual James (laughs) Bond and many other people, apparently. This is a pretty funny, pretty entertaining documentary because it looks at people from all walks of life all over the world who were given the name James Bond. And one of the questions that comes up is, what were your parents thinking? Uh, Did they think it would be funny? In some cases, it's just because they just simply liked the name or it was a family, you know, family name or whatever. Um, but all of them, almost to 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 an individual, agree that it was you know they're tired of the jokes. They're tired of you know everyone comes up to them saying you know how do you take your martini shake and that sort of like like it's the first time they've ever heard it. And some of them managed to profit off it. There's one guy, a charming theater director in New York, who's managed to uh, do some commercials, um, calling himself the other James Bond. You know. And it's 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 very funny. It does take a weird kind of structural jump at one point where you're sort of thinking, what's going on? And then it does explain what that's about. It has a few too many reenactments, which I never really love mm. in documentaries, but there's a reason. There's a reason for it. Um, one person even takes the name James Bond to use as a pseudonym to, to uh, escape being detected. So anyway, I thought it was pretty entertaining and kind of a charming, lightly diverting 
documentary. And are these all older men who would have had the name when their parents wouldn't have known what they were doing? Or a lot of these, the parents intentionally gave them this name. Some of them the parents intended. Some of them are older. One guy is maybe an 80-something-year-old retired oil man. Um, One guy is an ex-con in South Bend, Indiana, um, who who the fact that he had the name James Bond uh, became a big deal when uh, he was thought to, to have, have committed this crime. Um, anyway, it turns out he didn't do it, but but the fact that his, his name got him even more publicity. So, you know, I, it seems like a lot of the parents just did it because they did it. Well, and uh, I assume a lot of them go by Jim. <laughs> Some of them do, but the, yeah, the one, one guy talks about that. He says, you know, look, I'm not going to go by, he's, he's an African-American guy. He says, I'm not going to go by Jimmy. Jimmy's a white guy's name. He's <laughs> a filmmaker. There are, a lot, there are a lot of black Jims, though, so well, that, that, mm-hmm. would, that would be There's okay. a filmmaker named James Bond III ah. made one movie, he's an actor, too, made one movie, Death by Temptation. Remember Death mm. by Temptation? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It was an early 90s movie. Uh, James Bond III, brother. Mm. Um, <laughs> One movie. (laughs) (laughs) The film is The Other Fellow, about uh, men named James Bond. Matthew Bauer is the director. The movie's unrated, and it's available on demand. 88, a mystery thriller starring Orlando Jones, written and directed by Eromose, uh, oh, it's one name uh, director. Uh, Tim, what do you think of 88? Yeah, Eromose. Um, uh, uh, starring a guy named uh, Brandon Victor Dixon. Uh, uh, Brandon is, like, is, is quite good in this movie. He's in Power. Um, um, uh, he's in a lot of stuff. She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's TV, yeah. She's Gotta Have It. I like Brandon. He's very good. He's in this movie that's not very good. Um, uh, 88. 88 is a neo-Nazi code. 88 is the eighth letter of the alphabet, which is H, double H, Heil Hitler. Uh, and you, you see it on all the kind of stuff. That's what's going on. You can look on the internet and figure out any of that stuff. Uh, so that's what's going on here. That and a bunch of other, we'll call them theories about the many ills uh, of our, our country, are stuffed into this sort of political thriller, family drama, that's about this financial manager who's running uh, the finances for this campaign for president by this black guy who's running for president, Orlando Jones, playing this guy. Somehow, we tie all of that to the belief that a neo-Nazi organization has been, for about 60 years, woven into all of the elements of society and is actually backing the campaign of this black guy who's running for president. (laughs) And there's a whole bunch of stuff like that and a bunch of other dingbat stuff that I have spent hours smacking down in black barbershops for the last 25 years. In black barbershops and on black Twitter, for that matter, all of these sort of dingbat things are all over the place. And it's played straight in the film? It's played straight in this film. And I tell you, look, about 40% of this stuff is true. That's the problem, right? About 40% of it is true. Uh, And and discombobulating, disaggregating the little true bits that that folks really do think and talk about from all of the dingbat stuff is is, is the problem of of, of this film and these kinds of movies. Charlemagne the God, who's a very popular host, is a producer of this film. Uh, And if you ever watched his show and heard some of the things he has to say, they show up in this movie in complete sentences so that you do not have to actually think about them. 88 is unrated. It's at Lemley's uh, NoHo North Hollywood Theater and the Regal Foothill Ranch Theater. Coming up, more on Film Week. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Film Week on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. 
Hope you have a wonderful weekend that's planned or in progress. We're joined by critics Lael Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell. We've talked about the films that are out this week, but we want to talk about one of the Oscar-nominated movies this year, which is Top Gun Maverick. And I think it's safe to say the critical consensus is that the sequel is far superior to the original version of the film. Let's just talk a little bit about that first, and then maybe have some examples, Tim and Lael, of other franchises or dual films where the sequel surpassed artistically the original one. Tim, let me start with you first of all. What did Top Gun Maverick do that the original wasn't able to accomplish, or maybe he never even tried? It never even tried. That first movie wasn't trying to do that <laughs> at, at all. <laughs> to was, be a full movie. No, 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 to, no, yeah. no. It it, uh, it was just north of a of a, of a recruitment. Uh, uh, no, that's really <laughs> music just, video it, meets uh, Air Force. That's exactly. And it's sexy and it's wonderful, and I loved it. I saw it on the day. But you're absolutely right. Interestingly, though, Top Gun Maverick can't exist without that narrative foundation that Top Gun set. Gotta kill Goose. Goose has got to have that boy so that Tom can do it. All of that has to happen. So it's an interesting thing that that movie is necessary for this movie, a better movie, to actually have been made. And and I, I really like the way they thought about that very plainly. Uh, where they would be able to put that emotion. And particularly, you know, guys and military guys, all of that kind of stuff is very, very, very real. And that's the other thing that Top Gun Maverick is. Much more real. Uh, these people are actually people. Uh, there aren't any actual people in Top Gun. <laughs> you got, you know, and, and in terms of characters, full human beings, you got full characters here. Um, uh, and so I think that that's the big difference. But you got to have Top Gun to get to Top that's Gun That's such a great point. And, of course, absolutely true. Lael? You know, I agree with you, Tim. I I think there's a couple other things, too. Like, so Top Gun, the original, was, like you said, sort of a, a recruitment video, music video. It was a, a, a com- commercial for Tom Cruise with the sunglasses. It was a poster with Kelly McGillis and, <laughs> and Tom Cruise on the motorcycle. It was uh, a hit for Berlin that, you know, it was the, the, in the music group, that is. It, but it was not a good movie. It was cheesy. It was very cheesy, but it did Even become... Even at the time. Ve- very much at the time. And I don't think anyone thought it was a great film. It was just kind of fun, light and fun. But what it did was it became part of our kind of cultural mythology, our pop cultural mythology. And, you know, so you could reference Iceman or Goose or, you know, uh, scenes in the film, and people kind of knew what you were talking about a little bit. Enough so that, you know, all these years later... You can you can make a movie with with Tom Cruise with Val Kilmer who's gone through some health issues himself and and that gives it some, some pathos and gravitas and the acting is better the script is better the, the there's there's tragedy there's momentum the action the flying scenes are incredible I mean it's 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 one of the it's one of the most compelling films I've seen in years and you know it's everything that you go to the movies for that you want to go to the movies for and and that is in depressingly short supply these days and it still proves that Tom Cruise can be bankable <laughs> so so true so Tim what what other film uh, series do you think the second film artistically surpassed the first uh, and I go way back with this kind of stuff so I'm just gonna go ahead and go on yeah, back there right yeah. now I'm gonna go on right back to Superman 2 1980 so Superman great movie love Superman Superman 2 is a better movie. The introduction of General Zod and, 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 uh, and uh, the, the, the stripping of Superman's powers from him. Oh, man, so, just talk about pathos. Uh, in, in that movie, 1980, and I think, who, who directed that? I think that was, uh, I think it was Irv. Irv Kirshner, Kirshner, Irv Kirshner yeah. directed that, mm-hmm. as, opposed to, as opposed to Richard, mm-hmm. uh, directing that first one. So Superman 2, better movie than that first Superman movie, both great movies. And then I'm going to hit you with Aliens. Yeah, yes. yeah. You thought the sequel surpassed the first. It did, and I love Alien. Yeah, but of course yeah. they're different genres, right? Uh, the Alien, uh, sort of a thriller, sci-fi thriller. Aliens. That's really a sci-fi combat war movie. James Cameron, Ridley Scott. Different, same characters, same creatures, and also different a, fe- genres a female empowerment movie and, and both that, female yeah. empowerment mm-hmm, movies. Mm-hmm. But but Aliens moves twice as fast as Aliens. A slow pot boiler of a movie. You're waiting to see what's going on. Aliens, we know what's going on. That alien is going to try to kill them all. Uh, and it, that movie moves in crack. So I think it's actually a better film. But it, I think that begs the question, like, how do you make a good sequel? And I think if the first film is good, like The Godfather, 
then you make a second film that's different enough either structurally or in, in terms of uh, you know, you bring in you bring in Robert De Niro playing a young Vito Corleone. You bring you know you 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 mix it up a little bit so that you can bring something new to the experience, so that people have you know don't feel like they're just comparing it to the original. I want to mention also uh, Toy Story three, which is all the all the movies in that series are, are pretty. They're good. all good. They're yeah. all good. But to me, three had this sort of extra sort of. Um, lump in your throat kind yeah. of thing with yeah. you know uh, your kid growing up and all of that and and that that to me sort of deepened the franchise in in a particular way so I think that it's not necessarily just the second one in the series it can be the third. Did also. now you you mentioned Godfather? Did you think the second was a better film than the first? I did not. I I can't say that, Larry. But I but I think it was equal, and yeah. it's it's the Which only sequel so- that w- has won the Best Picture Oscar, unless you're counting uh, Lord of the Rings, I suppose. Mm. I, I was just going to say that those Godfather films are both so good that sometimes I forget which moments are in which film. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, and they, they almost exist as one right. big movie for me, those two. Yeah. And then we have the third film. You, you were uh, talking about sci-fi with Alien and Aliens, um, and I want to uh, point out in the Star Trek film, you know, there was the first feature film, Star Trek, which was a bit bloated and plodding, the Second one, Wrath of Khan, yeah. made by the TV division of Paramount, was actually the superior film. So I think, much for better, much. I thought, and really entertaining with a great performance by Ricardo Montalban, of oh, course. Khan, but also, God, wasn't yeah. he reprising a character that he from did the in, TV in, in the TV series? So I yeah. think again, like people had a little bit of that embedded in their collective memories. Yeah. And, and from all those years later, and he still looked incredible. <laughs> yes, as like ageless Ricardo Montalban, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. Uh, Lael, others that well. Paddington 2. I want to throw out Paddington 2. Paddington 1 was really was really pretty entertaining, but Paddington 2 was I have to say just a perfect movie with a wonderful performance by Hugh Grant and just fabulous in every possible way. Charming, entertaining, delightful. Loved it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about Superman 2 you thought was superior. We've had a lot of Batman films over the years. Yeah, interesting. Batman Returns, 1992, Michael Keaton again, Tim Burton again. Batman Returns is a better movie than the first Batman. The first Batman is fun. Uh, that wonderful score by Prince and Jack doing the Joker and all that fun movie. Batman 2 is probably the first darker Batman. We, we get to the Dark Knight much later. But Batman 2 is a pretty dark film. And Michelle Pfeiffer, who we talked about today, mm-hmm. in that Catwoman uh, outfit, oh my, uh, <laughs> that, that was extraordinary. And, and, and Danny DeVito was a mm-hmm. very scary and sharp penguin, penguin. Yeah. Uh, in, that, in that film as well. So that's a sequel. Hey, Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, this is all, these are important, but that Empire Strikes Back is a better movie than Star Wars. It's a better movie than Star Wars. It just is. What about Dark Knight versus Batman Begins. I I think the the, the Heath Ledger performance really mm. just deepened it and and darkened it as well. It's another you got another me example. I don't I don't personally prefer. I know critically a lot of people feel that Empire Strikes Back is a better film, but mm. for me the the thrill of seeing Episode Four, uh, <laughs> A New Hope, uh, the original Star Wars was you know it's hard to. Hard to, to recapture, recapture that. Yeah. I think that I, I agree with you. I think Empire is the better film, but I think the audience impact mm. of that first one, because it was it was so different yet familiar, you know, with what Lucas accomplished with that, that that can't be the same the second time around. Yeah, and you can't have you can't have an original introduction yeah. uh, again. Uh, we, we just had what we think will be the last Halloween movie, but you know who knows really. <laughs> but Halloween two, nineteen eighty one. Uh, uh, was an outstanding film. Uh, it, it literally picks up at the exact same moment that Halloween ends and presses forward, and it is every bit as thrilling as the first actual Halloween film. They probably still ended the series <laughs> with that, uh, you know, about right. 40 years ago. Before we break, I'm going to throw another one out there that goes even uh, farther back than yours, Tim. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, uh. James Whale, who, of course, did the original Bride of Frankenstein, Elsa Lanchester as the Bride. An even better film, but both excellent. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. We'll continue talking about sequels. And we remember Raquel Welch, who died earlier this week at 82. It's all coming up on Film Week. Yeah. 
It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Tim Cockshell and Leo Lowenstein. With Top Gun Maverick being Oscar nominated as one of the 10 best picture choices by the Academy, we're using that as Exhibit A for a sequel that far surpassed the original in terms of its artistic execution. It's just a better film in pretty much every way. Um, and we're talking about some other examples of that. Leo, you have some, some others to add to this list. Right. Well, Mad Max Fury Road, I think, is is an example of a sequel that outshone outshined its original. And that of was course, so much fun. Yeah, yeah, so excellent, and 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 enhanced in many ways by the technological developments, the performances, and also, of course, Road Warrior being a better film than the original Mad Max yeah, in many yeah. ways. I mean, that's a series that just grew and built upon itself. Um, and, and another action film as well uh, that comes to mind is Terminator 2, I thought was mm. much better than the original Terminator. Uh, a, a terrific performance by Linda Hamilton and added some humor, some some classic moments. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the diminishing returns when you get past two and start working your way into three and four and five and six and, and, and things like that. And you're absolutely right. Um, Road Warrior, um, if you watch the original Road Warrior, the Mel, Mel Gibson film, if you watch that film today, you kind of kind of can't get through it. It's kind of tough to get through yeah, that film. Because Mad Max was actually the second one, wasn't it? Uh, it was... It was was Mad Max, and then it was was Road Warrior. Uh, It's what they were. Road Warrior is an action film. Um, Mad Max was a revenge film, and that that I think is is the difference. And the world, the world in Mad Max had not been built yet. Uh, The world, by the time you get to Road Warrior, and then obviously all the 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 more recent films, the world has been built for us, so we know what the movie is actually about. You don't really even know what uh, Mad Max is about when you act when you first watch it. It it is amazing though how much that you know the one that came so many years later Fury Road that you meant you know took it and with the additional technology and and all the, the you know the musical choices and everything so refreshed the whole thing. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Here's another example. Um you know uh I, in the Rocky, in the in in, no in the Rocky franchise, I I loved the first one, but yeah. I remember speaking to director Ryan Coogler, who grew up actually watching Rocky two mm-hmm. with his father and loved that one. Was much more attached to it, and out of that love came his wanting to make Creed. And so there's a franchise that has practically been exhausted, but you know he had he breathed new life into it through his love of a sequel. Itself, yeah, and, and Rocky Two is is it, look. I love Rocky. Uh, it, it, it's 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 the quintessential film of that type. But Rocky Two, uh, uh, Carl Weathers, uh, 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 um, oh, um, who is the um, Mr. T? Mr. T. Uh, Mr. That Mr. was Rocky Three. He was uh, in Rocky Three, I think. Oh, I think I, I, in... I, have I can see, see what can happen. I, with I, I, I can't. <laughs> well, well, there have been so strength. many Rockies. It's hard which to one keep was Dolph separate. Lundgren? I, oh, I my son him. thinks that 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 was four. My son thinks that's the best one. I don't think so at all. It is really but, interesting the way they can all sort of bleed together after yeah. a while. Yes, they but, do. But I remember the one with Mr. T being the, the Rocky uh, that I thought was absolutely extraordinary. When Carl Weathers has to become uh, Stallone's boxing coach when, when, when Burgess Mayors. That's Rocky too, right? That's so funny. Three, it's so funny. I don't but I'm know. pretty sure yeah. that's in the second film and it's a better film. Yeah. We turn our attention to Raquel Welch dying at the age of 82. She died after a brief illness, according to her agent, died in Los Angeles, the area where she grew up. And uh, someone who started out modeling, moving into acting. And in fact, the first film where she really came to uh, attention was in Fantastic Voyage. We're going to see things no one has ever seen before. Not just something under a microscope. Think about it. That's the trouble I have. Being shrunk. You may learn to like it. Excuse me. For a nice young lady, you play with the damnedest toys, Miss Peterson. (laughs) That'll teach you where to keep your hand. Now I know. Raquel Welch from 1966's Fantastic Voyage alongside Stephen Boyd. And then, of course, um, she's loaned out and in uh, the U.K. makes One Million Years B.C., where she has only three lines, 
but becomes uh, a poster icon with the brown uh, doeskin bikini that she uh, wears as she uh, you know, deals with prehistoric creatures and the like. Went on to a number of significant roles later. And, and Lael, you know, your thoughts about what Raquel Welch represented? Well, she was the, of course, she was the ultimate sex symbol. But she was she was more than that. She was uh, a a fun a very funny comedian and uh, could make fun of herself as well, but also could be self-empowering. I remember in um, watching her on the, on the Cher show, singing along, because I'm a woman, with Cher and just giving it, knocking it dead. I also loved her in the Three Musketeers. She was the love interest in that. She was delightful, could make fun of herself, but also, you know, be quite important in her own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a fella of, of a certain age, my age and your age, Larry, yes. uh, you might remember seen Raquel Welch uh, in, 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 in a, a very, very old Bewitched episode. <laughs> and you might remember seeing Raquel Welch in a very old episode of McHale's Navy. These episodes, oh I, I literally... I'm trying to picture her in McHale's Navy with Ernest Navy. Borgnine. Uh, it, was, it was wonderful. And I actually remember those episodes with Raquel Welch in them. And you're right, she was so funny, wonderfully sexy. Oh, forget about it. And she wore that sex symbol thing uh, as an empowerment thing. She wore it so well. My favorite Raquel Welch movie, though, 100 Rifles, 1972. With Jim Brown? With Jim Brown. Uh, that is one heck of a movie. And, and she's even very, very good. And the movie you can't really make today, not with this title anyway, Mother Jugs and Speed, Peter Gates film. That's a really good movie about about social structures. She plays a cop in that movie. It's really, really excellent. So, yeah, Fantastic Voyage and all of that. But Raquel Welch made some really heady films about about social issues that she was in uh, back in the day. And it, didn't she have a love scene with Jim Brown in 100 Rifles and 100 that Rifles. at that time was controversial? That was a big, that was a big, big deal. 100 Rifles was about 1969. Yeah. Yeah. yeah grow, growing up in La Jolla, so she was a Southern Californian raised here. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because she she also, as you said, seemed to have a sense of humor about her, her sex appeal and a real sense of herself as well. I was reading all the remembrances of her and the people who worked with her, Lael, really liked her. She's a very popular person to work with. Yeah, she was known as someone who was very easy to work with, very easy to get along with. And, you know, I remember another thing just not that long ago, an appearance on Seinfeld, I think, mm-hmm. where she played herself and she gets into like a... A fight with the lane or Kramer or something like that, and she won't move her just, arms. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she was just, you know, she she knew that she had this kind of this reputation that preceded her, but she allowed herself to lampoon that as well, and and I appreciated that very much about her. But I have to tell you, I did not realize she was Latinx until maybe four or five years ago. I did not know she was uh, yeah. I think a Bolivian by, 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 by birth or something like that. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. It was, I, I can't recall which of her parents was from uh, Bolivia, but yes, absolutely. All right, we remember Raquel Welch earlier this week died at the age of 82 and her impact on Hollywood. Thank you both so much. Enjoyed the conversations about sequels and remembering Raquel Welch, our critics this week, Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com, and Lael Lowenstein uh, also joining us here on Film Week on LAist 89.3. We remind you that if you missed any portion of the full hour of the program when it airs Friday or Saturday, it's so easy to hear on your schedule. You can use your smartphone app, the LAist app, or go to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to Film Week. Subscribe to it. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much from all of us at Film Week. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.